0: Long
1: talk radio Long talk. it's time for the com radio show com radio is an in depth look at all things va if you need help with the va log on to com. now here's your host Luke Cheryl Cook
0: welcome ladies and gentlemen on this uh, 13th day of September 2018 we're here with our co-host, Jay Basser, and today we have Dr. Bash and the sidekick there, Bill, uh, and uh, I hope you people brought you pencils and papers so you can write this stuff down. If not, uh just so happens we have a excellent archives, and you're welcome to go in there and search the shows uh, at your will. So, uh, Dr. Bash, how you and Bill doing today? I'm
2: doing good. Bill just called in not want ah. to know what the link was. But Bill just called in not want to know what the link was. So I sent him the link for the radio, so he'll be here in a second.
0: Yeah, but, um, am,
2: we'll, I oh, hey, am I there? in? Am I there? There you go, Bill. Yep, Bill's in. Hey,
0: all right, I made it. Hey.
2: What <laughs> <laughs> a <One> day. <laughs> well, good so Bill, deal. I'm just about ready to re- tell him about my new... Uh, my new little YouTube video can youtube youtube Craig bash and it's got a little six minute video on veteran stuff, and it's got a bunch of contact information at the end, you know so that's all cool. newest, newest, and brightest, yeah, and then um and then bill and I we had a couple of cases recently that we thought we might talk about, and I think that um the faster one to talk about the meals ready to eat or the or the uh the <laughs> rateable case you talked about last week a little bit, Bill.
3: Sure. I'm up for
2: whatever we need. <laughs> yeah, so what was, that, what was that called? Last week you described the thing you used for years. It was called rateable case or something? Ready to read? Um, oh, a decision-ready claim? Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. Ready? Yeah, yeah that and... Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the process basically... Before the case goes to the rating board for a decision, the development team, the pre-decision team, is to assemble all the relevant and necessary evidence and make sure that the case is, quote, ready for a decision. And then they transfer it to the rating team for a decision
0: Oh, so you just can't. Go
2: ahead, Dr. Bash. Well, I was going to say, if you get it kind of like baseball, you know, you get it ready for the batter to hit it, right? So the pitcher puts it in the box, and so the pre-decision team gets it all set up. Is there a certain pathway for that, Bill? Something? Does it, you have to apply for something special, or do you send it in with all the details? Uh, it's just a, a
3: general process that's described in the manual. And, uh, you know, you're... Your offices are generally divided in three parts, a pre-decision team that assembles evidence, a rating team that makes the decisions, and then what they call a post-team, meaning post-decision or after the decision, a post-team that is tasked with implementing the decision and making the payments, and each section has their own um, responsibilities in that regard.
2: So in your case, when you when you put it in, you said um, this is a rateable case, and kind of told the predecision team that they could move it forward fast, something like that. Oh yes, well
3: in in recent history, <clears throat> BA has now created uh, a standard called the decision ready claim, and you must use a uh, representative for that to help you prepare your case. And if your case, if you have assembled and presented VA with all of the evidence they need to make the decision, VA attempts to try to have that decision done within 30 days. And, in fact, in recent history, VA actually did that for me.
2: That's good. That's good. That is
0: good. Uh, look at look at all the time you can save. And yeah, and yeah. Bill, you you're you know if they do happen to deny you, you still have the right of appeal, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That didn't change.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think What about seeing
1: pigs in? Come again? What about seeing pigs in?
3: Um, VA has published these disability questionnaires, DBQs, and yes. those can be comp- completed by a physician of your choice, and you can submit it with the claim. Oh, a uh, DBQ?
1: Yeah? Yep.
0: Now, what happens if uh, supposedly you're with an outside doctor? A <laughs> doctor, and, and Well, yeah. Uh, and they want to write a. Uh, put an opine on there. Uh, there's actually no location for that uh, on the uh, regular DBQs. Now. That's correct. That's right. So. Uh, They just attach the opinion.
3: Certainly, what I do. Certainly, Certainly. that's what I do. Submit it on your letterhead, the the physician's letterhead that is, and sign it, and that's good evidence. Um, It's important when one does that. Um, It's it's important for the opinion to offer the reason. Okay. Okay. It's understandable if a doctor says, you know, in my opinion, uh, this gentleman's uh, ankle um, condition today is related to the ankle sprain he had in the military 50 years ago. Okay, but why? How do you know that? And and what evidence are you relying on to support that conclusion? Um, and if that if that explanation is reasonable.
0: I have
2: every reason to expect the claim would be granted, so bill when we do ours now, I'll write my nexus my nexus letter about the topic. and I try and you know link my nexus letter so it's consistent with the lay letter and the lay letter and nexus should be consistent with the medical record, and the medical record should be consistent with the testing, and then you know should be within whatever rules. So sometimes yeah, in, in, per,
3: like, in a perfect world, yeah yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a perfect world, yeah. but
3: there you know we live in a in a messy world, and uh sometimes there are clues uh, some sometimes many times military records aren't going to contain perhaps you know a precise diagnosis and a precise symptom. Um, how often do military members um endure pain, endure symptoms, and don't report them uh that's part of the culture, uh, so it, it might not even be documented. Um, however, a veteran's statement that they experienced symptoms is evidence. If it's a sworn statement, it's evidence, and it must be considered. Um, the the courts use that, that several times. Okay,
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll use, use that concrete example of the case we had recently. You want to talk about a little bit the, the night vision goggles? <laughs> oh, certainly, certainly. Um,
3: take the case of a um, pilot training other pilots to use night vision goggles when they're flying. Now, these helmets and goggles and the counterweights in the back of it to make it balance. Um, exert forces on the neck as the helicopter maneuvers or the pilot looks in different directions. Um, so you take a person who, after service, you know, made no complaints while in service of a, of a neck problem, didn't seek care for it anyway, and now years after service, they have a very advanced uh, degenerative state of the the cervical spine. Now we've got blown discs and we've got cord compression and nerve root compression and all these, all these terrible things causing plenty of uh, manifestations. Now the question is, is that natural aging or did it result from trauma like the uh, forces of these night vision goggles? Even though the veteran didn't report it in on active duty, His statement that he experienced those symptoms in service while flying is evidence, and it counts. Now, the doctor can look at what the veteran tells them, and the doctor can compare that with his knowledge of the medicine to say, well, this is what I would expect if it was a result of trauma, I wouldn't expect it to be this bad if it were just aging at this veteran's age. And that would be a plausible
2: basis for granting the claim. So many times, Dr. Bash, so many times when I do these cases, you know, the VA the will send them out for a c exam, and their sort of go-to phrase is this is the aging process. So what Bill's saying is you have to have another doctor opinion to counterbalance that and also... See if the lay letters corroborate the fact that you had a chronic chronic process. Right, Bill?
0: That's right. right. I'm a member.
2: Be- yeah? Uh yeah. What was
3: that?
0: Now how many uh people using night got <clears throat> um, you know bet uh pilots using night vision or anyone using night vision Going to start complaining about their neck hurting because they'd be afraid they'd pull them off off of uh, out of duty.
3: Yeah, lose your flight play. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> you know. right. Or so prematurely you would, end you you your career. It. <laughs>
0: that's
3: exactly right. And is that not part of our military culture?
0: That is you know? our
3: military culture. Rather.
0: You know, the worst thing you could do in the military is go on sick call.
1: I mean absolutely. if you're a pilot you are a yeah. pilot you're told to stay away from the flat surgeon. <laughs> you
2: <bet>. yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs>
2: so my dad my dad my dad was a World War Two fighter pilot, right? And he got drafted in the war and went through the aviation cadets, you know. So now he has a son a son that's a doctor and he goes, uh doctors are only troublemakers. Mm-hmm. That was his <laughs> words from from the first pilots in World War Two. So, it's a very long process to stay away from physicians, you know. And
1: <laughs> mm. uh, your dad was in the Army Air Corps, wasn't he? Got the bash.
2: yes, sir. Brown shoes. <laughs> so, even back in the day, the doctors were trouble. Yeah. So, Bill, I saw I saw a lot of. of uh, yeah, I've seen other pilots that have, um, besides the night vision goggles, just the fighter pilots or any of those guys that have a helmet on because if they're pulling, you know, two, three, four Gs, you know, four times yeah. ten pounds is forty forty pounds. And I've seen some of the worst spines. Yeah. Yep, I've seen some of the worst spines in my entire career from fighter pilots <laughs> and G-force pulling guys, just from those helmets bigger than mm-hmm. football players, bigger than, and it's multiple discs. The neck, necks are a mess, so it's a real deal. Yeah, and
3: think of those Navy pilots hitting that carrier deck. Yeah, and they get
0: neck,
2: neck end, low back,
1: you know. Man, yep, do, of course. Now you got to hit it at full bore. You you can't let off the gas. You got to hit it, you know, wide open because you have to be able to have enough inertia to go around in case something, you know, your the
2: hook doesn't catch. You better get out of dodge. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I had a guy I had a guy recently too that was a pilot that had all these things, like he had like uh, retinal tears in his eyes from too many G forces, you know, the new planes pull so many Gs. He had hemorrhoids mm-hmm. and rectal prol- prolapse out his rectum, was, you know, believe of all the G mm-hmm. forces. Of course he had neck disease just, and shoulder disease and back disease could
1: know, you imagine flying a five uh, uh, hundred million dollar fighter jet? And the only thing keeping your butt on the carrier when you make it land is a $250 tail hook. <laughs> 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 mm. You've got to admire those guys. you
0: got
1: to admire them. Yeah, got to. I'll tell you something, Dr. Bash, what I've seen too in my lifetime a lot is uh, uh, in the radiology field. You have a lot of radiologists and you have a lot of uh, heart cath that uh develop a lot of back problems because of wearing that lid all the time.
2: Uh yeah, that's right. So yeah, you don't realize there's a lot of weight. The, um, in um fact I had some back problems and one of my um the weight was bad and one of my professors had a had a shield that was made out of tin. Just tin will also mm-hmm. shield the X rays and it's a lot about lighter but it's really very really expensive. So at one point I almost got myself a tin a tin shield but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, mm. lot of risk there. You know, radiologists classically die from radiation-induced cancers, blood stream cancers, and there's a high yeah. rate of cataract formation, and you know, skin cancer. And you know, the first Dr. Rankin, the first guy who did the radiology stuff, you know, you see that classic picture of him with his ring on his finger. You know, that yeah. classic X-ray picture. Of the first, well, nobody talks about it later on. He had and lost with his that finger because of the X-rays we got on the, no. you know, the first sample. So, yeah, this occupational right. is all over the place. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm. Italy, it's not something to wear no all mm. uh,
3: Yeah, we were um, we were discussing last time and we were discussing earlier about the you know the 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 importance of medical evidence when you're trying to establish entitlement to compensation. And the the raters are all well-versed on the fact that they are not supposed to use their own opinions when it comes to a question of medicine. They're to rely upon an expert medical witness, such as a VA examiner or private physician. And uh, I, I... happened to come across this. I had a reason for looking it up, and I thought I'd share it with you tonight. Because many times we're going to find ourselves in uh, having a veteran make a claim that he has developed a secondary condition. In other words, he's service-connected for condition A, and now condition B has caused another, been caused by the primary condition. So, they would call that secondary service connection. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to cause it. It can be uh, granted, predicated on the fact that your service connected disability aggravated it. Okay, so um, take for example, you have <clears throat> a very severe mental disorder and you have a pre existing uh, hypertension. But if it can be said that that mental disorder contributes to the hypertension, then it can be service-connected on a secondary basis. Now, here's the principle. The manual has been revised, and the instructions given to the rating board now informs them that the responsibility for submitting the evidence rests with the claimant, not VA. Bill, can you say that okay. again a couple of times? All right. Here's, here's a direct quote. For those that uh, like to follow along, if you um, look in the VA's Adjudications Procedures Manual, M21, Part 4, Section II, and I'll read off the rest, 2B5D brings you to this precise section. That's m 21 Part 4, II2B5D, and it says the responsibility for submitting evidence rests with the claimant, Okay. And it also, now there's a bunch of sections here, like five paragraphs and four notes, okay? And contained in there, it says VA will satisfy the duty to inform the patient, the veteran, of what they need with the standard form EZ application. You know, that's the automated pre-printed, Section 5103 notice. They say that satisfies the, quote, the duty to assist the claimant. Okay. Now, if they, it says here, too, um, do not request further development if the veteran or the claimant fails to provide evidence Establishing the baseline and the degree of evidence, uh, aggravation me, the degree of aggravation. So think about that for a minute. What the manual is actually instructing is that VA is not responsible for determining the baseline and the degree of aggravation. The claimant has to put in the medical evidence to establish that. And, you know... Why uh, Why a going like that, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I always thought we so were supposed to assist the veteran, you know?
2: Well, well a claimant would
0: have to go out uh, to an independent doctor then, uh, such as Dr. Bash, wouldn't he?
2: We mm-hmm. couldn't rely I, on that's a nurse how...
0: practitioner. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Dr. Bash, yeah, so this is this is a very important point because in an effort to try and streamline claims a little bit, they're putting the onus of the exams on the patient. And then, you know, I'm only one doctor and I only have one through set of skill sets. So I can't, you know, I can't opine with very, you know, great degree of evidence in like maybe a foot disease or maybe cardiac disease. So what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to suggest to the, Patient and to the VA rater that you know these other exams are needed. Those help me with that too. We're working them up like we might go out and get a podiatry exam to support my exam. We might go out and get a cardiac exam to go with my exam. We might go out and get. We might. We're sort of starting to have to get subspecialty exams to booster my exams because in the, in the past I used to make my opinion based on those subsectors, but I wouldn't necessarily have as much depth of knowledge as what they're requiring now because I knew that when I made my opinion, it would force the VA to go out and get their own exams, right? They have to go get their own DBQs, and a lot of those doctors would agree with me, and then the case is going in the right direction. But now with this new thing that Bill's talking about, the raiders are kind of precluded from developing cases on the backside, and it's more of an onus on all of us who are trying to develop these cases on the front side to get more and more evidence. Right, Bill? Yeah. That's right. That's
3: right. I mean, and, and here's a here's – a, I'm going to read this out loud for everyone. Under the notes in that section, do not request an examination if the veteran has failed to furnish medical evidence establishing baseline level of the severity of the non-service-connected disability. If no baseline can be established, no aggravation can be demonstrated, and the claim should be denied. Oh, so, man. Bill,
2: does that... Yeah, yeah. Does that apply to other parts of the Schedule II bill, they've been told not to get exams?
3: No, this is this um,
2: um, is not a
3: general rule for all parts. This is just something okay. that the uh, VA has put in the section regarding secondary service connection by aggravation. And um, by w-
0: by what right do they have to put that in, Bill?
3: <laughs> they keep changing the rules as we're driving down the road here. Well, I, I, I must confess, I've had that argument with my colleagues before I retired many times. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I mean, they had to get that, that authority from somewhere. <laughs> I, I have to share with you, and
3: I'm sure you appreciate the, the, the humor of this. Um VA's compensation service used to come out with what they call service bulletins, okay? And they would sometimes come out monthly or thereabouts. And they would pick a topic and they would explain VA's position on how to develop and how to decide a particular issue or or something like that. So in September of one year, a bulletin came out and they were attempting to clarify how to evaluate disabilities that are on appeal and select an effective date. And they gave an example. The example was that of a veteran with a service-connected shoulder. Um, service connection is granted, a VA examination under the rules at that time. Uh, we're satisfied that the examination warrant a 10% disability. That, that's no longer the case. Because so the minimum rating is now 20, but at the time, 10% was an acceptable decision based on the evidence. Now the veteran appeals, and the veteran gets a new exam that warrants a 20% evaluation. The example compensation service gave in the bulletin was assign an initial valuation of 10% based on the first exam, and as of the date of the second exam, a 20% evaluation. Well, that's just one of those I couldn't live with. <laughs> so I composed a, a memorandum and, and sent it up through the chain of command and, and tried to help the folks understand that that instruction is directly contrary to VA's general counsel, Prescient Opinion 12-98. And the present Opinion of the General Counsel is binding on our decisions. And I guess it was maybe five months later they rescinded the bulletin and said apply the general counsel present opinion. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, if, if, if someone's <laughs> interested in that sort of thing, if if, a, if, if you get an evaluation. And you're you're not persuaded that that's a correct evaluation. You certainly can appeal that. And then VA develops the evidence or you submit the evidence and VA determines you're entitled to, yes, a higher evaluation. Well, that new evidence that justifies the higher evaluation applies to the origin of the claim. So when we decide this, we have to decide whether it should be retroactive to the earliest effective date for the Granted Service Connection or at some subsequent point based on the evidence, not some arbitrary rule. For example, a veteran, um, when he gets his first notice and gets an evaluation, might experience some event that made it worse. For example, you might have a 10% knee and you file an appeal and then you slip on the ice and bang your knee and now you've got a 30% knee. Well, when did it become 30% disabling? Well, the contemporary treat- contemporaneous treatment records point to the day the veteran slipped on the ice and banged his knee. That's when it became 30% disabling. That would be a plausible basis for an effective date from that. Too many times I've seen rating decisions where the evaluation is effective, the date of the VA examination corroborating the increase rather than when the veteran said it increased. And that's not necessarily correct in all cases. You know? We have to consider what the veteran says and we have to consider what all the evidence shows. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: <clears throat> because like, I have a example, situation I have mm-hmm. a situation that uh, kind of falls in that category. They give me, uh, on my hearing, they give me retro back to 2002 at
1: 10%. Mm
0: -hmm. Then, my last go-around just recently, they increased that up to 50%. Wow. From 10%. But they only give me retro back for one year. One year. Yes.
3: Not sure why, but... Now,
0: that that falls in that category where you fell and hit your knee. Uh, that's when it started. Uh, they went from the time they gave me the hearing test, the last hearing test.
3: From the last test it was a year prior to... Yeah, the retro. Okay. Um, With hearing losses, sometimes that can be rather specific because of the numeric values that are so important to establishing the degree of the loss. But if I were reviewing that case for a decision, I would have looked at, okay, when did the veteran say his hearing got worse? And sometimes... If, like, for example, they'll come in for a personal hearing and the veteran will say, My hearing got worse since my last exam. Well, that means you're entitled to a new exam. Well, the new exam comes in, justifies 50%. Well, what the effect did they, what effect did they, should it be? Well, the veteran said on the day of his hearing that his hearing was worse. Okay. So maybe the date of the hearing might be an appropriate date to assign the effective date. And the examination merely substantiates what the veteran said at the hearing. So that, that's another possibility. There are A veteran might come in and say um, his back got worse, but when you get his uh, private records of care, you see in the treatment records it actually got worse six months before he filed his claim. So it would go back six months before VA got the claim. You see what I mean? Um, Yeah. So in the old days, it was called in accordance with the facts found, which means look at the evidence, make a actual conclusion based on that evidence, and then assign the effective date in accordance with those facts found. That's what it means. It's a getting to be a lost art with the mechanization of uh, the rating system. Uh, but well, I'm to, uh, what, uh, Why couldn't a guy come
0: along and say, "Hey, they screwed up on my first hearing
3: test. My
0: hearing was terrible then." Oh,
3: and absolutely can. In, yeah, in in fact, I absolutely. absolutely would that be can, a, can agree. be a Would that
0: be a a cue?
3: No, not as long as it's a pending claim. If if it's a continuously pending open claim, okay, the facts found would apply to any particular date associated with that claim. And I can give you an example from memory. I remember deciding an appeal, and I assigned an effective date, and it was so much money that, you know, it had to get a signature from management. It's called concurrence when you go over um, a certain dollar amount which I had a tendency to do, and the member of the management team questioned my selection of the effective date. And here's the scenario. The veteran filed a claim for hearing loss. He had an evaluation. He was assigned 10%, just like you. But he appealed, and he came in and he testified, and he testified at the hearing saying that that examination doesn't reflect how bad my hearing was because the word recognition test, I was guessing at some of those words and maybe I accidentally got them right. I should get a new exam that actually tests my word recognition. And so BVA remanded it and said, give him another exam. And based on the second exam, the word recognition was much worse Mm-hmm. and it predicated the increase now what affected data plot I gave it to him from the original data claim for this reason BVA accepted the veteran's testimony that the first exam was not accurate and ordered a second exam the second exam that was acquired therefore replaced the result of the first exam, which is no longer for use because BVA found it to be inadequate. So the second exam goes retroactively to the original state claim, and that's why. Oh, I understand. (laughs)
0: Therefore, they wouldn't have ordered the second test had not the first test been uh, protested.
3: Another way of saying it, if BVA was satisfied of the adequacy of the first exam, there would have been no need to order a second one.
0: That's correct. That, okay. that's unless, why unless now,
3: there, there are exceptions to that rule, unless the veteran comes in and says his hearing got worse after his last exam. Okay? True. In that circumstance, okay. In that circumstance, there would be a later effective date associated with that, again, based on the facts found.
2: What well, was that your difference, Bill, between the first exam and the second exam? Uh, no, in,
3: yep. in each case, well, I'm, what I'm, I have
2: to do, I'm,
3: well, what I used to do in each case, I would review those examinations, and I would decide whether the first one was adequate or was not adequate. And if it was inadequate, that means I can't use it. So the second exam is the first time VA got a proper exam, and that applies to the whole claim period.
2: That's okay. an important point because when I review the records, oftentimes I'll see that the examiner or the audiologist or even other parts of the record will say that the patient wasn't cooperative yes. the exams, not quality, you know, and I can't make a determination. So those exams should be no... Nullified and then redone. It's like a, That's a Right. If, if, if it's
3: nullified and has to be redone, then um, by all means, you have to uh, give that veteran um, the benefit of the doubt. You have to take it all the way back, in my humble opinion, in many cases. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you know, the so manual again, and, and the reason I keep going back to the manual is VA has placed so much emphasis on the manual as being the source of guidance for making these decisions. And so I go back to the manual a lot. And uh, just lost the total point I was gonna make, but what the heck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about
2: that. <laughs> so how, many, so how many years were there was there between the first exam and the second one in your example? I I had been about five years.
3: Um, that would be about average because it takes about five years for BVA to make a decision. Uh, the cases I got on remand um, typically were five to 12 years old.
1: Well, yeah. Let me shift gears a little bit, Bill. Okay. How much how much experience How much experience do you have uh, dealing with claims that are filed based on 3.156C for appeals? Um, yes, it, it comes up occasionally. Records? Yeah, it hey, comes um, up doc, occasionally.
2: Dr. Basher, hey, Bash I don't know what that means. Can you guys explain that 3.156? Sure, Sure, sure.
3: The, um, the regulations governing the reopening of claims impose a requirement for new and material evidence. Once you lost the claim, it's lost forever. And then if you file it over again, you must submit or you must point to new and material evidence to reopen that claim. And the effective date would be generally when you filed the request to reopen that claim. Now, there's two exceptions. The regulation is found at 3.156, And in one section, that would be section B, if that new material evidence is presented or the attempt to reopen is done before the decision becomes final, that is, within a year, within a year or before a BVA decision on it, then you preserve the effective date associated with the prior claim. If you miss that one year or if you get a denial by BVA, Then you start over from the date of reopen claim. The second exception is at 3.156C, and this applies to those cases where the claim is reopened and granted based on additional military records. And the premise is those military records existed at the time of the old claim, but for some reason we're not acquired, we're lost, we're misplaced. Um, So 3.156C says if you find those military records and use those military records to reopen the claim, it goes back to the original claim because those are predicated on military records. And I've granted more than a few of those myself and argued and won several cases for it as well. I could probably come up with some examples if I put my mind to it, but (laughs) But, um, that's the the basis of going back retroactively with
1: 3.156C. Okay. We've we've had a lot of discussion and a lot of folks were discussing the issue and could find the records and they filed a claim and claim got denied based on no service records and Couple of years of yeah, and then you go to your congressman.
3: And... Yeah, yeah. the congressman. Yeah. You go to your congressman, the congressman uh, helps you find them. You come up with those military records, um, establishing the uh, the fact that we're searching for mm-hmm. based on those military records. It. it goes back to the original claim.
1: Yeah. Now, there's a lot of cues involved with that. I'm thinking about one myself here pretty soon so we'll figure it out.
3: <laughs> well, actually, that's, that, you know clear and unmistakable error is a much harder case to win than a 3.156c. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you don't you don't have to prove that the original decision was wrong for your 156c. You just have to find the evidence and turn it in.
1: And um, mm-hmm. you're entitled to it. basically you're saying yeah. a, you're saying the effective date claim would be easier than filing a Q based on oh, Absolutely. Okay. Absolute. If, if you get those, mm-hmm. no, that's that's just terrific. uh it a Uh touch it what I go, we go discussing uh, uh aggravation. Does the, does the regulation mm-hmm. still state that the veal only pay to the extent of the aggravation of the issue that you, that that's been aggravated? Does that's still the rule, that they change yes. Okay. No that, that's that's Still, yeah. cool. Still cool. You know, you're, the rule. Still the rule. You're title to university hard, rock.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's say you had a 10% back, but you mm-hmm. have a severe limp from a service-connected knee, and that aggravated it to a 20% back. You would be paid the 10% difference. That makes a whole lot of sense. Rather similar. That's rather similar to um, a patient or a veteran who comes into the service with a disability, but it's not disqualifying. Okay, so mm-hmm. you're enrolled. You go in um, with a 10% disability. Oh, maybe flat feet. Okay, just an example. Please, um, mm-hmm. so, Okay. Everybody agrees you had 10% flat feet when you enlisted. But after a few years of marching and running and everything else, now you've got 30% flat feet. Okay, you get 20%.
1: Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Here's a good hypothetical to run run by you. Uh Uh-oh, this is a true story, (laughs) true true statement. But Navy Navy vet, who was uh, actually the tail hook we were talking about earlier, didn't catch him. About got him. <laughs> <laughs> this guy uh, was witness of an aircraft accident and filed a PTSD claim. And he filed okay. a social security claim basically about the same time, but social security was faster than the VA was in his claim. And he used the VA mm-hmm. doctor's report. Social security said that he was totally disabled, could not work due to his post traumatic stress disorder and anxiety disorder due to the incident he served in was on board the military. So. And let me
3: guess: so Social Security based on Social Security. Him, Wanted it based on the VA
1: records. <laughs> That's right, and the VA doctor. Okay. Yeah, I see that and, so uh, often. He filed yeah. for, yeah. for an IU claim, but he wanted social mm-hmm. security from the same doctor that got his IU, but the date from the from the onset for his social security and his VA disability is a year apart. Okay. So he went well, back and you... he's thinking that the date <laughs> It was a weird. Yeah, the,
3: yeah, there are so many variables. I, um, at what point in time, whether he was working or not, at what point in time did he become unable to maintain substantial gainful employment? And that might be different from the last day worked in some cases. Um, there's a, there, when it comes to employability, or for a total evaluation for a mental disorder based on the fact that he's totally disabled. The day that actually happened, that that is what our responsibility is to find. Find that day and grant it. Okay. Um, I used to use an acronym for that. uh, You think? day it happened. P D I H The the date it happened. Yeah. (laughs) The date it happened. The date it happened. Not the. Yeah, not the date you got the application uh, for IU, not the date uh, the examiner said so, not the date Social Security terminated it, but the day it happened. Right? That's a You know, a vet, a vet might have been working and gone on sick leave for, for an extended period of time. Well, during that period of time, he's still employed, and I see a lot of mm-hmm. unemployability claims granted as of, Last date of day after the last day of employment. Right, well, maybe, maybe not. If he spent that whole time on sick leave, then he was not capable of maintaining substantially gainful employment, he was just riding on sick leave. So, when did he go on sick yeah. leave? That might be the date. You know, or the date he last actually showed up. That might be the date.
1: But it, mm-hmm.
3: plenty of variables to pick. There's around. all kinds of
1: variables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. there's a it kind of a that's one that kind of sticks in the back of your throat, you know, when you say, What? No. Doctor No. you got any- both the points you want to discuss.
2: Well, this whole thing about development, you know, that's really important because uh, you know, Bill was talking about how the raiders are not developing much, and you know, the DROS aren't developing too much, and even now, I guess at the at the old AMC, you're saying that they've been kind of limited on your development, right, Bill? Because those are the guys that come out of the out of the BVA. So if they're not developing anywhere in the whole system anymore to try and streamline, then. We just really have to make sure we do the best development we can on the front side. Right, Bill? You want to talk about that a little bit, the development important.
3: Very much Evidence. so. And, and realize that um, it's extremely difficult for V8 to catch up with the claims. Um, you know, you, you've got to crank fast. You've got to go fast to try to get these cases addressed. I mean, take a look at those appeals. The, um, the data indicated that a lot of veterans who have appeal spending will die before they're reviewed. And uh, that was part of the motivation to ramp things up and get it moving. Um, and so if there's something you can do to relieve VA of the burden and the time it takes to find your evidence and you take and give it to it, that'll expedite your outcome. Um, uh, look, simple comparison. Um, let's take the what used to be called the Appeals Management Center in, in D.C., where, where all the remanded appeals were being adjudicated, or many of them. Um, on average, this is some years ago now, so data can change. But on average, that office was granting about 25% of the remands, and they were taking about a year and a half to do it except the cases I represented. Cases I represented were resolved typically within six months, and 50% were granted. Why? Okay, because I did not rely on VA to get the evidence. What would happen, I would get a copy of the BVA remand. I would call the local service officer and say, the Board of Veterans Appeals wants this evidence. Go get it and fax it to me today. <laughs> and what would happen, mm-hmm. the appeals management center, which it the call called then, would mail a letter to the veteran and say, we have your remanded appeal and we're working it here. As soon as that letter comes out, I know the file is on the station. This is back in the paper days. And I would hunt down a file. I would review it. I would obtain from the service officer the evidence the BVA was interested in. I would then take the next step, develop and obtain any other evidence that I know is necessary for the right decision, and obtain that and submit it along with the evidence that the BVA was seeking. I even went to the next step of writing the rating decision, and tabbing the evidence so the rater could see the evidence I was relying on for the points I was making in the decision. So the rater was faced with a choice. They could agree with me and take a very fast credit for getting a lot of work done, or they could take the time and check it out. And that would be fine, too, because they'd find everything that I pointed to. And so by having the right evidence there and turning it into the rating team with that evidence, cut the time by two-thirds and doubled the grant rate. So it's important to have your evidence and turn it in.
2: Well, that That there
0: would, would be... I would think they could eliminate a lot of the backlog if a lot of other raiders or, uh, or techs would go through that same procedure. Why, why isn't that a common procedure within the VA?
3: Well, that was not within VA. I was working as a representative. I was oh, representing remanded appeals. Yes, as a representative, as okay. yes, a, a service officer. I was. Huh developing the evidence. I was sitting again. Now, if you find some offices around the country might have a, uh, you know, like some of their service organizations might have a staff of two people or three people, and they, and they might be representing 3,000 claims. So they are as pressed for their time as the VA employees are. So it's hard for them to have the time to search for the evidence and to find it. Um, I, a perfect example just, just came to mind. Um, veteran claimed PTSD and he had been denied for years and years and years. No proof of the stressor, no proof of the stressor. This, this is before the days of the fear of hostile action uh, liberalization. The story was he was with an artillery unit He was sent with an advance party to relocate the fire base. While he was there, the original base was attacked and everybody was killed. And this gentleman suffered horribly with depression and survivor guilt and flashbacks and all that stuff. Suicidal. He was hospitalized for suicide attempts over and over again. He was just, just in bad shape. And I'm thinking to myself, now, how can an artillery unit be wiped out and the Army doesn't have a record of it? it Does not make sense? So I started digging through these records and saying, no, let's get the history. And it, something odd popped up. Um, this fellow was a member of the National Guard. Well, back in the 60s, you know, most, I must say that I knew plenty of people who enlisted in the National Guard knowing they wouldn't be sent to Vietnam, okay, <laughs> but in that case, um, I actually tracked down that artillery unit, and it actually was from a uh, National Guard unit. And I said, well, let's check out their web page. I'll see if there's somebody I can contact there who can help us confirm the losses that that unit suffered in Vietnam. A bit rare, but it did happen when Guard units did deploy there. So I went on their web page. And when I opened the web page and looked at the picture, the picture was a memorial to their soldiers who died in Vietnam in that combat action. <laughs> and there were all their names. So it was really easy to confirm the death of all those soldiers. <laughs> Won that case. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you can just you're just a mouse click away from finding what you need. Just a mouse click away. And um, I, I'm sorry to say, you know, if, if your development team is in a real rush and they got to get their points and they got to move this thing across, you might not have time to take that extra step for you. So it's in your best interest to make sure you got it.
2: Well, a lot
0: of people wouldn't have thought of doing that, though, Bill. Yeah,
3: yeah. You know, well, it comes it comes with experience, you know. Um, I don't know if, I, if if I mentioned this last time. Forgive me. I'll stop. But a fellows claiming um, herbicide-related disease he says he's set foot in Da Nang, you know, and been denied for years and years and years because there's no military mm-hmm. record of it. Um. So I thought about that for a moment, looked in his file and granted it. Management questioned me about that, said you don't have any military records documented. I said, Well, let's go over it a little bit. Now you see here, here the fellow stationed in Southern California. Yeah. Okay. A few days later, where is he? Here it shows him on board USS Carl C in the South China Sea at Yankee Station. Yeah. How'd he get there in those few days? How did he do that? I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Why don't, how can you even question me if you don't know how he got there? What did he tell us, partner? He said he got a flight to Da Nang and then caught a hop to the carrier. How else is he going to get there? <laughs> <laughs> That's that's how it was done. You know, in the 1960s, we did not have an aircraft that could take off from Southern California and land on an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. He had to land someplace and switch planes and take a hop out to the carrier. Da Nang was the base that supported the ships at Yankee Station. It was just 60 miles off the coast of Da Nang. (laughs) Why don't you know that? (laughs) Uh, that's, anyhow. <laughs> well that's how things
0: get done. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. But it comes with experience and um you know I was I was a, part of a group that uh central office called the Krusty old dros. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted young malleable minds.
2: <laughs> So, so uh, build, it. It, was build, it was good. So it boils down to the philosophy, you know, like if the reader or the person in the, in the process is, like they said in the old days, you know, grant if you can, mm-hmm. deny if you must. That's a positive leaning foot forward versus the other foot that says deny first, you know. So if you're if you're trying to grant it, then you're going to go do the extra step and look at the record and look at the click and find the picture. You know, in my case look at the medical record or trying to advance the testing. And it's all about the philosophy of the person that's looking at the file. Yes,
3: absolutely. And um, there were times when um, I was at odds with other folks there um, because I wanted to invest more time. I wanted to do more development. And uh, that was contrary to getting the cases done quickly. Um, but I felt, you know, that. It's our duty. We need to do that. You know, we can't just ignore it. We've got to turn the page and see what we can find. Um, and it, it stems from uh, a long time ago, a long, long time. I, I was first accredited to represent claims before BA by the Marine Corps League in 1976. Okay. A, lot, a, lot of, a lot of folks I've done business with weren't born
0: <laughs> oh so, uh Dr. Batch, worry we have less than a minute. You wanna give our uh give your uh d-
2: contact yep. information? Yep. Once again go to the go to the World Wide Web and look at Craig Bash YouTube and you'll find my contact on the end of that video. But you can call um Skip, Skip's good, nine two five three eight one seven five six one. He can always schedule you for a half hour conference with me the next day. Uh, my email is drbash at com. Those are two good ways. Just Google Dr. Craig Bash and you'll find my website. And That's another good way to track me down.
0: Okay, good deal. This has been a good show. You guys have given us some good information today. Thanks. We sure appreciate it too. Hey, you know, you'd be surprised if the veterans that listen to this uh,
3: through our
2: archives.
0: Thousands
3: of them. Thousands yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah.
1: I hope
3: we I hope we get the message out. hope thousands get helped.
1: Well, that's all.
3: Hey, we're getting out, believe
1: me. You'll see the feedback I get. Great. Mm-hmm. Hey, if
2: have you ever, guys back if on. you have a so question... If you guys have questions that come out of the audience, you know, like specific questions, track them down and Mm we'll try and tackle them real time or research them.
0: Okay. Okay. Good deal. No problem. Well, I believe that's it, John. We're out of time.
1: All right. Thanks for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Hadit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of Hadit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Baster Show.